0: Welcome back to Cato's 7th Annual Summit on Financial Regulation. Today we're talking about retail investors and the future of equities markets. We've just finished a really great panel discussion about retail market access on a wide range of topics, including an excellent question from one one of our audience members about some topics that we're probably going to talk about here too. Um, That audience member asked about retail investor access to IPOs and I suspect there's going to be more in this panel for that audience member to hear, as well as all of you. This panel today is on retail, now is on retail opportunities for investors and talking about the opportunities that are and are not available to individual investors. We hope that you join the conversation with hashtag CatoEcon, and please submit your questions via whatever way you're live streaming our event. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our moderator for this event, who is Evie Liu, a reporter at Barron's who covers markets and investing. She graduated from the University of Southern California with a master's degree in journalism. Evie covers a wide range of market news, including a lot on financial, financial innovation. And I will say, as I was reviewing the SEC's request for comment on digital engagement practices, I saw some recent work by Evie cited to by the SEC. Um, So congratulations there. Um, I look forward to the conversation that Evie and the panelists are going to have, and I'll turn it over to her now. Evie?
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third and last panel of today's program, Expanding Retail Investment Opportunities. My name is Evie Liu. I'm a financial reporter with Barron's magazine, as Jen has mentioned, and and I'm very excited to join our three panelists today. Uh, They are Carl Muth, adjunct assistant professor at University of Chicago Booth School of Business, Erska Velikonya, professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, and Andrew Vollmer, senior affiliated scholar with Mercatus Center at George Mason University. With stocks at record high and bonds having historical low yields, investors have been looking to diversify their portfolio and find returns from some new innovative sources. But as many of you know, many alternative investment opportunities are not really that accessible to regular investors like you and me. Sometimes it's because of the regulatory restrictions and sometimes it's just how business was down but there has been some changes in recent years and we've definitely see many new opportunities opening up to retail investors. That's what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, and before we get started, I also wanna remind everyone that you can send in your questions on Twitter with the hashtag KatoEcon or on YouTube, Facebook and Slido through the chat boxes right here. Uh, And I will start today's conversation by asking each of our panelists to briefly introduce themselves and tell us what they think about expanding retail investment opportunities. Um, I will start with you, Carl.
2: Thanks so much. Um, I teach at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Prior to this, I taught for a decade at Northwestern uh, Econ and at the law school. Um, I think it's long overdue that we, not only expand, but think quite carefully about the range of investments available to retail investors. And I think it only takes a glance at the past decade um, to understand why a broader range of options in retail investor portfolios um, is needed.
1: Okay, next to you, um, Erska. Hi, uh,
3: my name is Urska Velikonia, as Evie already mentioned. I'm a professor of law at Georgetown. My primary areas of research are sort of twofold. One is securities enforcement, specifically efforts done by the federal government to a lesser extent state governments to enforce compliance with the securities laws. The second line of research is on the social cost of securities fraud, looking at not just securities markets, but also add the spillover effects of fraud into other markets, such as the markets for debt, um, effects on the fraudsters' rivals, on their suppliers, clients, customers, and so forth. And not surprisingly, because information is like water, it spreads everywhere. Like if anyone's ever had water in the house, you know that's true. Um, Information is like water in that sense. It cannot be contained through just a single market. So with that preview, you can probably guess where my intuitions lie that I'm primarily interested in, uh, yes, expanding retail opportunities is something that we should look into, but not without taking into account the costs and the potential risks to which retail investors would be exposed in a market that is dominated and controlled to a large extent by sophisticated players. I will add one thing to the end. In the last two years, 18 months to two years, now let's say 18 months, we've seen one of the biggest disruptions to the retail markets. And it hasn't come so much from how the markets are regulated. It's come from the fact that a federal government put thousands of dollars in retail investors' pockets and retail investors then took that cash to invest in various different opportunities that there were available to them. Some ended up losing it all to GameStop, otherwise produced interesting, rewarding financial returns so i will end here but i look forward to a fruitful discussion
1: all right sounds awesome and andrew would you like to introduce yourself
4: i'm andy volmer i'm currently at the mercatus center and before that i taught securities regulation at the law school at the university of virginia i was deputy general counsel at the sec and i practiced for many years in the Securities Enforcement Group at Wilmer Cutler. We're, this panel is going to talk about expanding opportunities for retail investors, and what I have in mind are individuals who are not securities professionals or are not uh, professional stock pickers. Why do we want to talk about retail investors? Retail investment is not a specific or explicit objective of the federal securities laws, but it's a good policy objective. Increasing investment by individuals helps to create wealth for people with less income and less ass- fewer assets than those who are typically associated with investing in the stock markets, especially the equities markets. Having uh, individual investors participate more, makes more capital available to companies and it cultivates personal responsibility for financial decisions. What we want to do is make equity ownership more accessible to individuals without sacrificing investor protection. And we can do that by taking a fresh look at the laws and regulations governing public offers of securities and exemptions from the public offering process. Those topics concern direct ownership of equity securities by retail investors through transactions with the issuers. And that's what we're gonna talk about mostly in this panel, although I hope we're gonna talk about IPOs Um, uh, as well, we will not be talking for the most part about indirect ownership. So mutual funds, ETFs, retirement plans. Although those are very important areas for retail investors. But when we think about transactions with issuers and opportunities for retail investors, My view is that the current laws governing public offers and exempt offers are complicated, outdated, burdensome and costly. They go well beyond the justification of investor protection and they impede capital formation. One example, an area ripe for reform is the private offering exemption in Rule 506 which depends heavily on the idea of accredited investors. My view is that we should get rid of the accredited investor category and instead require use of a streamlined disclosure document. I expect our panel will be talking about accredited investors. And as I said, retail and participation in IPOs. So I look forward to our discussion.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Andy. So let's dive right into our conversations today. As many of you know, um, many investment vehicles, including hedge funds, private equity and venture capital, they're only available to the so-called accredited investors. These are people considered by the SEC as sophisticated and rich enough to make risky financial decisions. Carl, you've written a letter to the SEC actually calling the accredited investors rule unnecessarily restrictive. Why are you against it?
2: Well, if we look at the origins of sort of what we know now as 501 Reg D, the problem is that we've historically mistaken means for sophistication as as we've alluded to even in our introductory comments. Uh, There's this idea that people who are wealthier perhaps can afford to lose more money. That certainly may be true, Um, but there's also a misperception that people by virtue of their wealth are suddenly financially sophisticated.
1: (laughs) All right, yeah. Andy, you seem to have some thoughts on this very topic too. I'll move on to you. Uh, You've written, like like mentioned in the opening remark, uh, you've written a paper proposing the elimination of the uh, accredited investor category. Some people might argue that this could lead to bad investment decisions and personal finance disasters like (laughs) Carl was talking about. Do you think that will happen?
4: I don't think the risk uh, would be higher than under the current system. Let me make just a few points. I hope we can get. Carl back because I, uh, gr- I agreed with some of the thoughts he was beginning to express. But let me try to make a couple quick points. First, the accredited, uh, the securities laws were not designed to protect against bad investment decisions. Although that's crept in a little bit in various parts of the law. The main objectives of the Securities Act were to require disclosure of a reasonable amount of information truthful information about the company's selling securities, and to provide investors with easy-to-use legal claims if they thought a seller was engaged in misconduct. The law did not allow the government to filter out disfavored companies or disfavored investors. If a company made the required disclosures, it could sell securities and any person could buy. So let's start there. Second, even under the current system with the definitions of accredited investors, those definitions have large holes in any protection from bad investment decisions. I think this was a point that Carl was about to make. Some of the definitions of accredited investors do protect. They are aimed um, at including sophisticated investors like broker dealers, like hedge funds, like insurance companies. They're very sophisticated. They can fend for themselves. But for individuals, the, the main definition, not the sole, but the main definition for an accredited investor is based on uh, net worth or income. And the net worth and income tests do not provide a rational connection. an investor's ability to make an informed investment decision. Income and wealth are not effective ways of identifying persons who understand the risks of buying securities. There are other examples. So you can be an accredited investor if you are a corporation or an LLC having $5 million of assets. Almost any person over 18 years old, can form a corporation or an LLC. No other experience or education is required and nothing about owning a corporation or LLC or collecting $5 million in assets is an assurance of financial sophistication. So the current system doesn't do a very good job. The securities laws are not aimed at protecting against bad investment decisions. My proposal which I'm happy to go into in more detail, is to replace the category of accredited investors with a streamlined disclosure document. Under current law, under Rule 506, no disclosure is required for a sale to an accredited investor. But to me, disclosure and information are what matter, not financial sophistication. Without decent information about a company, a person's financial sophistication is not a big help. So requiring a basic level of disclosure is more protective of investors, not less protective. So let me just make one last point, which is if the worry, Evie, is eliminating, the worry about eliminating the accredited investor category, is that it will increase misconduct in the private market for security sales. The evidence does not support that worry. When the SEC proposed expanding the accredited investor definition about a year and a half ago, the SEC said it was not aware of widespread problems or abuses associated with sales to accredited investors. The SEC had another statement about crowdfunding, which also said there was not a worry about increases in misconduct. So I don't think we will sacrifice investor protection if we got rid of accredited investors, especially if we replaced it with a disclosure document of some kind.
1: Oh, thank you, Andrew. Erska, what's your thoughts on this topic? Do you think the definition of uh, accredited investor is a necessary thing?
3: So Andy makes many good points. The first one is that the definition as it is right now prioritizes administrability, not sophistication, ability to understand the information, right? It's is this something that the government regulator can administer, are the rules such that investors can easily understand roughly what they are and decide whether or not they're going to engage. So with that, because net worth or income are used or the amount of capital someone was able to raise are used as a proxy for sophistication. It's very easy to agree with Andy, yeah, that seems like a very iffy, iffy proposition. Um, now it's somewhat less if if you look at a distribution of wealth in the United States, where predominantly the the affluent do tend to be executives of of large companies or or st- or successful startups, and to a much lesser extent, um, movie stars or or, or successful athletes. Um, despite what you might read in the tabloids. But back to the point, I mean, Andrew's point is one that's that's hard to disagree with. I would like to hear a little bit more about the disclosure proposal, because what works in disclosure in the public markets, it's not just that the information is disclosed, is it disclosed in a way that can be debated and hashed out between various different groups of investors, analysts, and so forth, right? Case in point, WeWork. That is a wonderful example of an IPO, an S1 comes out and slowly over, say, took about two weeks or three weeks for analysts finally to come to the bottom of the, the document and say, oh, my God, what, what is WeWork doing here? But at, at, as a basic proposition, I think Andy's idea is a solid, is a solid one and what we should work with. I think we can work with. I would wait. I, I add one aside, and this is a point that is often made in the sort of deregulatory circles, which is that opening up access to retail investors to these capital markets would make a lot more would improve capital formation. Right, so. On the margin, a little bit more money, sure, right? But the amounts of money we're talking about are going to be minuscule. At this point, even if you look at just public equities, more than 80% of public equities investments comes from the 10% of richest Americans, right? The reason retail investors don't invest much is that they don't have the money. It's locked primarily because they don't have the access. Now, to the point of, is more capital gonna be available? At this point in time, there is too much capital available looking for investment opportunities. I I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but SPACs are a nice example. Right now, there are 400 special purpose acquisition vehicles that have raised funds from investors looking for potential investment opportunities. And the expectation is that the majority of them will not be able to find a target that they think is going to generate sufficient returns, right? So companies that cannot obtain funding, there's a, a couple possible explanations for, for why they can't get funding. One is, the idea is a dumb one. It has no chance of ever making any money because it's a bad idea. Or perhaps, maybe the idea is okay, but the management is bad and therefore the founder can't get funding. There might be information lay symmetries. The founders just cannot communicate with investors with the resources, or perhaps the investment market is inefficient. But those are arguments that need to be fleshed out a bit more before we sort of jump to the conclusion. Oh my goodness, there's all this untapped capital that opening up markets to retail investors will will
1: release. Thank you, Erska. And Kyle, nice to have you back. I I will have the next question for you, actually. Um, We can talk a little bit bit about the actual investment um, proposals of these of these so-called risky assets that we're trying to not let retail investors have. Are they really risky, as risky as people think? What about the returns? Do you have some data for that?
2: I do. Um, When we talk about risky assets, we have to talk about them in their context. So when we think about the variety of investment um, opportunities available, we look at, well, what is the story with retail investors? What is the story with specially credentialed individuals, for instance, which are specifically called out uh, by the SEC and other regulators and administrators as special people? And the answer is that specially credentialed people don't perform better in the macro sense than people who don't have these credentials In fact, there's no fund being run by a Series 7, Series 65, Series 82 licensee that has outperformed a retail investor who simply bought Bitcoin in 2013 or 2014 and has held on to it. Not a single one, not a single venture fund uh, has outperformed someone who simply bought Bitcoin on a lark um, seven or eight years ago. So I think we need to examine You know, what are these investments in the context of the risk that they um, embody, but also in the context of their other dynamics? Bitcoin, to stick with this example for a moment, is an example of an asset that offers venture class returns with public equities level liquidity. That's a very rare combination, and it's a combination that is particularly attractive to retail investors who may want to get liquid quickly in a 24-hour market. Um, I think we need to think carefully about, okay, maybe it's a risky investment, but in what context? And to uh, address one of the earlier comments about you know disclosure. I do think disclosure is important. Ob- obviously, operation of markets depends on the availability of information, but we've focused so much in recent years on publicizing and cataloging information that is, in my opinion, completely irrelevant, um, like the 953B provision in Dodd-Frank. Who cares how much the CEO makes compared to the average employee? There's no evidence that this has anything to do with firm performance or riskiness of an investment. Um, So we're broadcasting irrelevant information while ignoring the actual needs of retail investors.
1: Thank you, Carl. And Andrew, it seems like you have something else to add.
4: I just had one further comment. Uh, My thinking about the possibility of eliminating the accredited investor category is not to tap into some deep well of new capital. I agree that the amount of capital that would be made available is probably reasonably small. But the principal policy reason for eliminating the accredited investor category is a personal liberty interest. There is currently the way the accredited investor category operates is it's patronizing and exclusionary. It's a government decision that's cut out a reasonably large portion of the population with an inadequate justification. They can't do with their money what they want to do with their money. People should be free to invest or not to invest and to bear personal responsibility for that unless there's some serious risk of misconduct or social harm. And I've already addressed that. I don't think that those risks um, are any higher than under the current system. So the main reason to get rid of this category is because it impairs a, a personal liberty interest.
1: Thank you, Andy. Uh, you actually mentioned earlier uh, IPOs, um, they actually used to be a clo- another <laughs> closed store deals that's almost only available to institutional and wealthier investors. But That seems to be loosening up a little bit lately too. Robinhood, for example, said it will give retail investors access to some IPO shares and it did offer a quarter of his, its own IPO shares to the customers on that app. Uh, Andrew, what's the implication of this move? Will that inspire more IPO companies to do the same thing?
4: I think it's too early to tell. We see occasionally uh, companies that are interested in allocating more of their IPO shares to retail investors. We saw it with Google, Facebook, and now Robinhood. So it happens uh, from time to time for those three companies, it was related to their main area of business. Which involved the mass market, so that might have been a reason they were interested in retail investor allocation. Um, so I think if you think hard about this area, it doesn't really matter whether retail investors are given an uh, an opportunity to buy in IPOs or not, subject to one economic point or financial point. Not this is not a regulatory or legal point, and this is. I think the reason that the question of retail investors comes up and that's the issue of underpricing of IPOs. Underpricing occurs when the IPO price is lower than the price that the stock achieves on the exchange after the IPO, within the next day or so, or week or so after the IPO. It's called the IPO POP. And um, it turns out that the underpricing um, of IPOs is a significant cost to issuers and, and uh, groups that, that represent the interests of issuers have expressed concern about underpricing. Now, by the way, it's in the range of 14 to 18%, but it doesn't always happen. There are there are very good examples of companies that were not underpriced. So Robinhood, for example, turned out not to be underpriced. Same with um, Facebook and Uber. So there are, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And it's a concern to issuers because if the IPO price is too, too low, that means the company sold too cheaply. It could have received more for each share that it's sold. Remember, the company gets the IPO price, not the price the stock starts to trade on an exchange. Those are secondary trades. So issuers are a little concerned about underpricing. They want some underpricing, but not a lot of underpricing. So where does this underpricing come from? It's generally because underwriters and institutional investors, like underpricing they're the players and they're repeat players who care about a system that produces underpricing a a reasonable number of times so in institutional investors are the favored customers they buy in large volumes they're very sophisticated and they're repeat players they like the possibility of buying in the IPO. And if they want to sell some or all of their shares fairly quickly, they can make a quick profit. Underwriters like that because they like the institutional investors to come back to the IPO markets all the time. If there's some under underpricing, the institutional investors come back to the market um, for more and more IPOs that keeps the market for public offers and startup companies going public um, happening more frequently. So so that's the the reason underwriters and institutional investors like underpricing. Now, what about the retail investors? Those are the people we're talking about. They're generally less able to buy in the IPOs for various reasons, mainly because the underwriters prefer the institutional investors, but they think the underpricing works to their disadvantage. If they want to own a new issue, they typically have to wait until the stock is trading on an exchange. That demand causes the exchange trading price to go up. So one theory about addressing this is to include more more retail investors in the IPO allocation that would satisfy the retail um, demand, it would reduce the early demand in exchange trading, and that would help reduce the price increase in the early days. So the IPO price would be closer to the exchange price, you wouldn't have the underpricing problem. Does not tell us what would happen with institutional investors. So. That's what I think is going on with retail investors in in the IPO allocation. I don't think we really have enough evidence of what happens if retail receives a reasonable amount, Uh, although what happened with Robinhood was Robinhood did allocate um, a reasonable portion of its IPO to retail investors. And as I said, it wound up being overpriced and the exchange trading price for at least the first three days was lower than the IPO price.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Well, that actually naturally brings us to our next topic, SPACs. They have been another very popular way uh, from last year uh, for retail investors to invest in a company before it goes public. But there has been a lot of debate about whether SPACs benefit their sponsors as a cost of the regular investors. And there's also a few lawsuits going on that question the legality of SPACs. Erska, you mentioned SPACs early on, do you think the popularity of SPACs is a good thing for investors and do you think they are under-regulated?
3: Depends on which investors, uh, or the answer is always depends, it's always the right answer. Um, So SPACs are part of a larger universe of how does a company go from being a private company to being a public company. The The typical IPO process is the first one. Direct listing is another one in which the company doesn't offer any new shares to public investors and instead it's just lists. Slack and Spotify did that. So that doesn't really involve retail investors other than they can now trade in this particular stock on public markets. And a third group is SPACs. Um, and SPACs and direct listings are the two new alternatives for companies going public and the advantage of a SPAC, at least from the company's perspective. It, inv- it avoids the arduous IPO process. Now, I don't know exactly the sophistication of this group. So I'll go very quickly about what's a SPAC. A a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is a publicly held investment vehicle that's created to merge with a private company and by merging with it, brings that private company to public markets. Um, So it's a two-step transaction, right? The first step is this blank check company, a shell goes to public markets and Goes through an IPO, raises the capital. Investors in the first stage SPAC are typically a hedge funds, financial institutions, sort of financial market insiders will buy in this IPO stage for a SPAC. Now, this is a very watered down IPO. There's really nothing for a SPAC to disclose when it's initially started up. So, liability exposure is ve- very limited, which it makes it a very cheap way to raise capital. And in a SPAC, we'll have two years to identify a target to potentially acquire. And by acquiring it, bring it public. So for these two years, a SPAC will just be a pot of money. The money that it's raised through an IPO is put in a trust account, typically invested in treasuries or some other very low risk investment. Um, And during this time, initial investors in the SPAC, hedge funds, financial institutions, can redeem their SPAC shares at the nominal price. They get 10 bucks. They still get to keep warrants that give them a right to purchase, uh, participate in the merger. So they get all of their money back plus a potential upside. So you can see how SPACs can be attractive for the sponsor. Sponsor gets twenty percent of of the shares in the spa, in, in the merger just by virtue of being a sponsor for essentially a nominal investment. And in initial investors in the SPAC have a zero risk investment. They can redeem their investment at for whatever they paid for plus plus interest, and they keep the warrant. So there is empirical evidence suggesting sponsors get massive, phenomenal returns on SPACs. IPO investors in the SPACs also get very great investments, investment returns on essentially a zero risk investment. So who loses, right? Well, the losses turn out at the merger stage, right? When the SPAC is acquired, when the SPAC acquires a merger target, target investors um, are the ones that receive the merger price, but merge companies tend to underperform after the acquisition. Meaning that investors retail, typically more, sorry, 40% of the retail investors who buy these SPAC shares post-merger are the ones who end up not receiving a good return on investments. So for that's my answer to it depends. Now SPACs have gone sort of through the same sort of curve as I don't know, the Delta variant of, of the coronavirus, right? In the second to quarter of 2020 to the first quarter of 2021, SPACs went through the roof, multiplying, uh, I believe it is 275 SPAC mergers were completed in the first quarter of 2021. That has tanked by 80% in the second quarter of 2021. The expectation is going to decline further. The obvious question is why? Well, the reason is, that in a, or a reason is, one, realization, oops, maybe these returns aren't so great for certain investors, and secondly, the SEC released a statement by then uh, acting director of corporate finance, John Coates, now general counsel of the SEC, suggesting the SEC can and will enforce on SPAC deals. We understand them to be initial public offerings, uh, and you are making all sorts of projections that are demonstrably Uh, overly optimistic, the safe harbors are not available. Therefore, SPAC sponsors beware.
1: Thank you very much, Erska. Uh, Over the past decade, the Congress and the SEC has also been making it easier for entrepreneurs to raise money on the private market by giving them exemptions from the regular securities registration. Many people think it's it's good for the job creation and economic growth, but Erska, you actually signed a public letter earlier this year, urging the Biden administration to stop expanding and deregulating the private security offerings. You clearly see some risks here. What are they?
3: Yeah, so my, my co-panelists, uh, Andy and Carl both, and I think Carl should maybe be given the opportunity to elaborate even a little bit more. They've appropriately pointed out the opportunity cost of closing investment opportunities to retail investor, right? So this is the cost of the road not taken. If so I'm going to be a little poetic. And that's important to do, right? Because a general matter, people tend to be blind to the opportunity cost. My concern, of course, is, is with the potential risks to retail investors from these offerings. The SPACs are a sort of a nice case in point here that the little guy in the SPACs does get to join the bandwagon of participating in what looks like sort of a a pre-public company or a public a private company in the process of going public but they get to join very late and they get to eat crumbs that fall off the table and receive tiny returns i have little reason to believe that that would change if we made investment opportunities in early stage companies more widely available. My expectation is that you would see the exact same situation, scenario repeat itself. I think Carl's point to Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin is a different asset class, though perhaps not quite so different, right? There are early investors in Bitcoin that were sort of equivalent to financial institutions, early players, the ones with market uh, contact. Bitcoin pricing is very volatile compared to, say, equity markets the market is still also quite illiquid, despite being relatively liquid for a cryptocurrency. The vast majority of Bitcoin is not changing hands. It's sitting in in digital currency somewhere, which makes the market, as I said, both illiquid and, and volatile. Um, and similarly, if you look at GameStop, right, another public opportunity in which early stage, not early stage, retail investors participated. A few made a boatload of money. A lot of them lost a boatload of money. Um, and to the freedom point, we do allow uh, people to make certain freedom decisions, but not others. Uh, we don't allow them to buy exploding toasters. We don't allow people to buy mortgage products that are unsafe for them. We don't allow swimming in imports. Uh, we don't allow uh, driving the wrong way on a highway. There are all sorts of things that are prohibited. Um, and I would suggest that perhaps investing in retail opportunities as the market currently functions, is risky for retail investors and the return. Those ju- don't just necessarily justify those risks. Thanks, I,
1: sir, I wish I point. could
2: agree, um, <laughs> but I don't. Um, the opportunity set that we present to retail investors is not only narrower than it needs to be, but it's meaningfully inferior to what it could be And it contains choices that I think are objectively dangerous. So the paternalistic fantasy that we can protect people from making bad decisions is simply untrue Um, to the scoping question of, should we allow people to participate earlier or later? Well, let's take a SPAC example I don't care if you were the first or most recent investor in Lordstown Motors. Your investment is going to go to zero. Yeah, you might be able to pick up three pennies for every dollar off the steps of the bankruptcy court, but that's the reality of Lordstown Motors. Should we have allowed people to lose their money sooner or later? I don't know. We could, reasonable minds could differ. But to say that the public markets are somehow just an arsenal of Nerf weaponry where no one's going to hurt themselves is absolutely silly. And I would add on top of this that the government has a great history of endorsing investments that either have dangerous bimodal outcomes like lottery tickets, for instance, which almost always go to zero, yet government endorsed. Um, For 40 years, the FDIC and other parts of the government endorsed a hilariously dangerous piece of advice: that your age is roughly the percentage of your portfolio that should be in bonds. Well, wow! If you were if you're eighty, and you followed that advice for the last ten years, um, yeah, you might want to go out and buy an exploding toaster um, because you've sacrificed. I mean, you want to talk about opportunity cost. Um, let's talk about opportunity cost. If you had been 70 to 80% in bonds for the last 10 years, um, those are dangerous decisions that we allow. So I, I don't buy the paternalistic argument that we somehow can protect people from making bad decisions. Instead, I think we should give people the maximum number of available decisions and allow them to choose among them which is best for them. And yes, there will be winners and losers, but the government shouldn't choose who the winners and losers are.
1: Thank you, Carl. And Andy, you seem to have some constructive thoughts on this very topic because um, you've proposed as SEC, should create an easier and less regulated way for early stage companies to raise money. Can you tell us a bit more about what's your proposal and why do you think it's better than uh, what we already have today?
4: Well, my thought on this topic was a micro-offering exemption from the public offering process. And it's to make capital available for brand new companies in an easier, simpler way. It's, uh, I, It also would provide opportunities to retail investors. Let me just describe it real quickly. My thought was you would I, identify a category of brand new companies. My idea was companies that had revenue of $250,000 or less. Of course, you can change any of these uh, standards. In the um, So they could use this exemption and they could sell securities in a 12-month period up to an aggregate offering price of $250,000 or some other number if you wanted to pick it. That limit, but $250,000 I picked because of data showing the amount of capital that startups generally need to get going. And it's anywhere from 75,000 to about 210,000 in the data I looked at. Um, So there would be basically no other rules, no disclosures would be required. Allow the issuer and the new investors to decide what information. And by the way, for these brand new startups, the in, initial investors are typically groups pretty close to the founders of the company, so they can get information um, fairly quickly in an informal way. Uh, to deter possible misconduct, I would make available one of the private claims that's currently used in the Securities Act. It's Section 12A2. Uh, it allows a buyer to recover the amount paid if there's false or misleading. Um, statements made by the issuer. Why would this be better? Uh, the, my, I think the idea is simple and really low cost. It would not need much assistance from lawyers and entrepreneurs could use this exemption without giving up control to a bank for a loan. At the moment, most new companies get startup funding often from their close family or credit cards, but after that, they, th- they think about banks and they get loans. They do not use the securities laws. One survey that I saw said that only 7% of small businesses sought outside capital by the sale of corporate securities. So my idea is just to have a, a basically a blanket exemption from the federal securities laws for this very tiny group And I do not think that investor protection would suffer.
1: Thank you, Andy. Well, now that we're talking about new opportunities for retail investors, there's no way we can skip. crow Uh, up until today, the SEC still hasn't approved a a Bitcoin ETF yet, even though many people already own Bitcoin itself as an investment. Carl, you're probably the best person to address these questions since you've been the CEO of a crypto startup in your opinion, why is SEC so cautious about opening up the public market to cryptocurrencies? Oh, you're muted. About I this. think Carl, uh, you I've muted.
2: spoken with others on this topic. Um, there are, as you may know, crypto ETFs, including Bitcoin focused ETFs available elsewhere in the world, uh, notably first in Canada. Um, And there are investment trusts that are available to U.S. investors that contain and track with Bitcoin as a result of the underlying assets. Um, Example is Grayscale. Uh, That's not an endorsement of Grayscale. Um, But they are the uh, most visible example, GBTC being the ticker symbol. And I believe the only one that is actually tracked Uh, on a U.S. Bloomberg terminal, et cetera. So it's most visible. Um, There are also retail investors engaging in activities that I think should um, perhaps not alarm us, but should draw our attention. For instance, buying shares in the unrelated firm MicroStrategy simply because MicroStrategy has a lot of Bitcoin on its balance sheet Uh, MicroStrategy is not in the Bitcoin business. They're not an operating crypto company. Um, And I think the longer the SEC waits and is timid about this, the more interested retail investors will become in surrogate investments that give them some exposure to crypto markets, holding shares in NVIDIA, for instance, which makes high-performance processing cards Uh, that are used in some crypto applications, holding shares in MicroStrategy, uh, holding shares in IBM, which among the old guard companies has the most crypto participation, perhaps. Um, Wouldn't we rather investors directly expose themselves to the assets than go through all of these hoops buying something that may have a sliver of crypto exposure somewhere within it um, and short of that, wouldn't we rather people buy properly structured ETFs rather than buying more exotic investment trusts and other things um, that don't track with underlying asset? Uh, there's quite a bit of slippage if you look at grayscale, GBTC's history against the underlying asset. Um, and of course, investors pay for that slippage. Why not uh, allow people access to the asset directly? Right. That's the and argument I've made of to the, the SEC over and over, but uh, so, I'm in the so minority. Speaking
1: of the direct ownership of, of Bitcoin, do you think the SEC or any regulators have the jurisdiction or capability to even limit people's access to crypto without ETF, yeah?
2: Absolutely, the capability question is real. For sure they have jurisdiction, Um, They have jurisdiction under Howey to start with, if these things are, in fact, securities. Um, They have other jurisdictional measures that they can explore beyond the Howey test uh, in some of these grayer cases. Um, And no, I I don't think Howey is perfect. I don't think that cryptocurrencies are like an orange grove in 1946. Um, But I think it's important to look at what case law exists because the sec thinks the enforcement division attorneys certainly think in terms of what the existing case law is and what the analogies in play are and so understanding those analogies is important um i think we'll get to a us bitcoin etf quite soon uh i would be shocked if in the next 24 months that doesn't happen I think the success of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has been somewhat alarming to some people at the SEC because they don't want to see big trust companies replacing the role that ETFs and ADRs and so forth are supposed to play. Um, they, They don't want people buying a sliver of a trust that I mean, which people haven't done since the 1880s when people started investing in railroad expansion, uh, these kinds of sliver trust companies were used. This isn't the form that people are supposed to use to invest in these kinds of uh, activity. So I think the SEC knows that. It wants to encourage a better investment vehicle. ETFs are the obvious investment vehicle. Perhaps ADRs in the case of a foreign-held crypto trust that needs uh, depository interest from U.S. investors. Um, and the SEC, this is high on, the, there's a big, big blob on their radar screen. Um, and uh, w- we'll see what happens. Um, I don't have any uh, inside baseball on this, but uh, I do know that the Boston Fed Uh, has been working closely with the SEC on this for many years to study what the participation is, what the structure should be. Um, And I'd I'd be shocked if that group of people isn't the group of people that eventually promulgates the rules. Uh, And if we don't see two or three, because the SEC doesn't like to pick a single winner, I would guess that we'd get two or three or four uh, crypto ETFs approved, maybe in the same business week.
1: All right, thank you everyone. Uh, We're almost out of time and I wanna thank you all, all the panelists for participating in today's discussion. We have some great questions actually from the audiences, but unfortunately we're short of time and we didn't have time to address any of those. Um, But anyways, I hope everyone have learned a lot from uh, the talk today and I know I certainly have. Okay, back to you, Jen. Okay.
0: Thank you, Evie, and thank you to the panelists for this panel and all of our panelists throughout the day. Um, I think this was a fantastic group of discussions on some very important and prominent issues in retail investing. If you missed any of our presentations today, uh, the panel on retail market structure, the panel on retail access, some of this panel on retail opportunities, or our fireside chat with Commissioner Royceman please check out the Cato website. We will be posting recordings of those um, so that you can watch if you've missed. Uh, We'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, Again, my name is Jennifer Schulp. I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. These are issues that I'm very focused on. Um, And if you're interested in following what Cato has to say on these topics, please follow Cato, Cato CMFA um, on Twitter at Cato CMFA, um, or check out the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives on Cato's website. Um, And with that, this concludes Cato's seventh annual financial summit on seventh annual summit on financial regulation. Thank you all and have a good day.